Hi, I'm Len App from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Rafael Arizari. Rafael is professor of applied statistics at Harvard and professor and chair of the Department of Data Sciences at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. His research is wide-ranging, but is focused on problems in genomics and computational biology. Throughout his career, Professor Arizari has won many awards for his research, including in 2009, the Committee of Presidents of Statistical Society's President's Award, the same year he was named a fellow of the American Statistical Association. And more recently, in 2017, he won the Benjamin and Franklin Award from bioinformatics.org for his open access work in the life sciences. In addition to all his research, Raphael has also created uh, several very popular courses in the burgeoning field of data science that you can find on edX. And along with his colleagues from Johns Hopkins, Jeff Leak and Roger Peng, he blogs at simplystatistics.com, a site I highly recommend for anyone interested in data science. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Raphalab. Rafael is the author of two books on LeanPub, Data Analysis for the Life Sciences, which he co-authored with Professor Michael I. Love from Chapel Hill, and most recently, Introduction to Data Science, Data Analysis and Prediction Algorithms with R. In this interview, we're going to talk about Rafael's background and his research, what data science is and how it is evolving, his involvement in the, I guess you could safely say, somewhat controversial assessment of mortality rates following Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience writing and self-publishing his very popular ebooks. So thank you, Rafael, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I always like to ask people when I'm starting these interviews for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and where uh, I grew up. how you got into statistics. Where I grew up. I grew up in San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, and I got into statistics because I was good at math. I was always good at math, and I uh, went to college uh, looking for something good to do with math and trying many different areas where, where where math was used, but I never really found anything uh, that I liked uh, that there was clearly a career choice for me. So I, I basically finished math. And uh, during that time, I also spent some time in uh, these uh, summer camps for, for mathematics. And in one of them, I took a probability class, which I, which was my favorite class in the summer camp and became one of my favorite classes I've ever taken. Uh, and um, that got me thinking that maybe I should study probability and statistics. So I, I did that. I went to graduate school in Berkeley, UC Berkeley stats department, where I thought I was going to study probability. Uh, but I, as I learned more about what that was, I, I realized maybe it wasn't uh, for me, it probability starts getting quite abstract and mathematical as you, as you as you go forward in your career. But I did discover applied statistics while I was there, and that's what I'm doing now. I I, I did a thesis studying musical sound signals with David Brillinger, who who is a, an applied statistician who likes working on as many different things as possible. He's actually a student of Tukey, who also like to do that. There's a famous quote from Tukey, I think it's from Tukey, saying that statisticians get to play in everybody's backyard. So after that, I, I applied broadly for faculty positions and was lucky enough to get a, a position in the, the Department of Biostatistics at Johns Hopkins University, where they had no interest in, in some an expert in musical sound signals, but they did they did have they did have the, the the insight that I would I would be able to to apply those those skills in other areas. That's quite common in statistics, where you, you can you can learn the the methodological mathematical parts and learn how to apply it in one specific area, but then apply it elsewhere. And, and I was and the, the the department was right in that. I I started working in in other areas that involve what are called time series, which is what musical sound signals are. And I worked with things like uh, brain signals, uh, circadian patterns from mice, and uh, uh, measurements taken from uh, fetuses that where they try to uh, uh, they try to, to to measure health through their activity counts and heart rates. These were all time series data. It was a lot of fun working on these all these applied problems. But then I. I Eventually, I got involved in, in helping people doing analysis of microarrays, which was new back in 1999. There was no one in, in the department that was an expert in that area because it was a new area. So my chair, Scott Zieger, thought that I would, it would be a good match given that musical sound signals have a lot of 
numbers, 44,000 per second. And, you know, it was just relatively big for that, for what we were doing back then. And this microarrays also had a lot of numbers relative to what we had back then. So I started working in that area and then it just took off the, the, the pressures in, in, in academia, in research academia, where you're, you have to get NIH funding makes it so that we often tend to, to work in, in a specific area and stay in that area because we can get funding for that. So I've been working in that area for, oh man, 20 years now. And uh, it's fun. I like it. It's, it's very challenging. There's a lot of interesting practical problems. Uh, and, you know, throughout the whole time, I've been analyzing data, applying statistics, coding, and doing all the things that, that uh, kind of define data science today. Uh, thank you very much for sharing, sharing that. Um... Uh, you were reminding me, uh, or I, I was reminded when I was researching your background for this interview of a friend of mine when I was studying in the UK. He was uh, doing a doctorate in maths, and one day he's like, oh, I've, I can't make it tonight. Uh, I've got to go to Glasgow to help hatch some penguins. <laughs> uh, and it was a bit of a lesson for me in the sort of how wide-ranging the applications are uh, in everyday life uh, for mathematics and, and statistics. Yeah. Um, uh, and what an adventure it can be. Um, and, and so uh, eventually you ended up doing a lot of work in genomics, uh, and I understand that's a broad discipline. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, a little bit specifically about some of the work that you've, you've done. Sure. So when I, when I mentioned microarrays, I, I should have been more clear for, for the more general prob, uh, public. This microarrays is how I get into genomics. It's, it's a measurement uh, technology that can measure gene expression for thousands of genes at a, at a time. And that is, is, was my entry point into genomics. I, uh, one of the things that the, many of us saw at the, at the time was that the, the measurements that were coming out of these instruments was noisy, wasn't, could, could be a better quality. And that part of the, the reason they were low quality was because the, pre-processing, the, the data analysis part that goes from raw data to what investigators were given uh, could be improved. And I worked on, on that uh, aspect of it. We, we came up for, for, the very spe for a very specific technology. We came up with an algorithm that worked quite well, a, a statistical method that we disseminated through open source software. And that became widely used the the software got downloaded a lot, so it was it was uh, it was a gratifying experience. And then I, I started working on similar problems with other technologies. So microarrays was one, but th this field moves fast. And one of the, one of the things that moves fast is the technologies that are used to measure different endpoints in the molecule. And and I mean I could list you a long a long list of of applications and and different technology measurement technologies. I won't do that now, but for many of, for several of these, I have I have developed uh, statistical methods and and software to basically clean up the data to make it more usable for the end users, for the the investigators that use what comes out of these technologies. And was that was that work that initial work? Um, I, I saw a talk you gave online about. I think it. Forgive me if I get this wrong. CPG Island Shores. No, that was like, no. This is something an algorithm called RMA. That was the first one that we built, and that was one of the first algorithms that was part of the bioconductor project. The CPG Island uh, discovery, or, or the, the discovery related to CPG Islands and CPG Island shores, came a, a little bit after. That was one of the, the, the subsequent collaborations that I had with with this with this biologist uh, researcher in Hopkins, Andy Feinberg, who was very interested in in understanding. Uh, how DNA methylation changes across tissue and, and from cancers and normals. And back then, it was very difficult to measure measure this. Uh, and the technologies were particularly noisy, but we had this very productive collaboration where, where together uh, his, his group and, and my group developed new technologies, taking into account the statistical analysis we were going to do after after we had the measurements, it was a very, very productive collaboration in that sense that, that it was, there was this feedback um, uh, the, between the two groups of, of we saying this is the best way to analyze it if you can build it this way and then it would build it that way and there was a lot of back and forth. So, yeah, so that, that 
is an, an example this, this, that you brought up of, of how we improve the measurements that come out of these technologies. And in this particular case that you brought up, the, there was a discovery made because we were the first to see this because we had cleaned up the data enough to see it. So, so that was another very gratifying experience in, in, in supply statistics where the statistical approach actually made it possible uh, for the biologist to make the discovery. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. I'll make sure to put a link to it in the transcript, to the video in the transcription. Um, uh, your team was under sort of competitive constraints and budgetary constraints. And so operating within those constraints, you had you had a richer competitor, as I understand it. Who could... that, yeah, so now you're, you're going to a second thing. After okay. that first, that first, this, the first uh, project, there was a, sec a follow-up where we were... Uh, a technology change occurred, and now we we could look at an even broader broader sections of the genome. And yeah, that, that's the example that you're that you're given. And and yeah, it was it, there was a lot of competition, and and um, and a lot. So this played an important part in in making it possible for our smaller group to 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 actually come out come come up with results at the same time as the other. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's really interesting the way you brought in your team brought in a computer scientist to help write the algorithm so that you could actually confidently make draw conclusions from less data than you otherwise could have. Yeah, so actually well, well that part was the, the statistical part. Right. The computer scientist yeah, so we we were we used statistical techniques uh, to what we call borrow strength. To, to improve the signal with less borrow strength from from measurements to improve the precision at one measurement and that lets you uh, get a little bit more information well, sometimes a lot more information with less with less um, starting material or starting data the computer scientist Bang Langmead was was instrumental because the this was a very difficult challenge uh, to implement computationally. So if I had written the the code, it would have taken six months instead of what eventually became, I guess, a few hours. That that is not something I'm an expert in. I'm not an expert in developing fast algorithms. Uh, so so we had a, a component of this collaboration was a computer scientist, and this this happens more and more in in my area where you need a collaborator that or to use the tools developed by a computer scientist. To, that take care of making what you want to do statistically even possible. Uh, basically, put, write the code that, and use their algorithms, the clever ideas in their algorithms to to even make it possible to achieve what you want to achieve. I mean, as people who work in statistics are, are going to be aware of this. Is sometimes you have a, a solution, mathematical solution, that is sometimes not even that hard to to, to describe or to write down. But to actually get it, uh, actually get it from the data, it, it can could be a very difficult algorithmic challenge. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I've got some questions I'd like to ask you uh, in a little bit about um, one of the one of the emphases that you and and your colleagues on the Simply Statistics blogs uh, have is on the act the importance of actually doing the work, getting actual experience, um, uh, dealing dealing with data in in real world environments and how this is actually really important. It's, it's sort of like, oh, I don't want to sort of say just theory as though to, to diminish the importance of, of theoretical understandings of things, but particularly in data science, re really getting your hands on things seems to be crucial. Uh, but before we before we move on to talk about that and, and the way technology has actually changed and, and sort of driven what data science is today, I wanted to talk to you about uh, something that I discovered about you that I uh, when I was researching for this interview, one of the pleasures of this podcast is that I get to talk to people from authors from all over the world uh, and ask them about things that they might know a little bit more personally that the rest of us have only seen in the headlines. And um, so in September 17, there was a devastating hurricane named Maria in Puerto Rico, where you're from. The island is still suffering from the damage caused by the hurricane. And it's it was in the news just, just yesterday uh, because of comments uh, President of the United States made about how he thinks too much money uh, has been allocated to help people on the island recover. And I wanted to ask you about this because I was very surprised to discover that, quote, Harvard study that became well known uh, in the aftermath of the uh, 
Hurricane was was partly worked on by you. Uh, and um, you recently gave a talk about it called, uh, if I got it correctly, Mortality in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about this because it gets to the heart, well, it gets to one of the beating hearts of why why uh, things like statistics are so important. And so my, my, my first question is, um, can you give us a bit of a sense uh, of how the hurricane uh, affected life on the island for people? Well, yeah, so the power was out for months for most people. I think for most people, it was out two to three months. Uh, that was the main problem. Uh, 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 the, the other things you associated with natural disasters weren't as big a factor of, as this, as, a, as there not being any power. Uh, and that was, I think, what caused most of the, the problems that we were seeing. So that was... Um, that's how it affected people as members of my family were without power for, for months. And um, a lot of people left the island, but some have come back, but it's it's not completely back to where it was before, I don't think. Uh, there's also been a, 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 a immigration problem that, that started before, but that's not, that's for another day. Yeah, so that's, how, yeah, go ahead. How did people cope without power for months? I mean, literally lighting fires at night, candles, <laughs> candles, battery. Well, yeah. So th there's power generators. So you, you know, you 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 go buy diesel and, and and power them up, and you can. My family had one. My parents had one that could power their fridge, I think, and and a fan, a couple of fans. So that's how you coped. Fans are important because there's mosquitoes, not just heat. <laughs> so it's very hard to sleep without without some kind of uh, wind or AC. So, yeah, that, that's, that's how, I guess, the more fortunate people that could afford, could afford generators would cope. Uh, some people were just, you know, you know, just candles, battery-powered flashlights, and eating canned foods. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah, <laughs> was I, tough. Imagine, I can only imagine. Um, and and in the in in the so after the after the storm, some uh, strikingly low uh, it's a crude term, but death count numbers uh, came out in the media. Um, and so you became part of an effort to see if those numbers were correct. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. About, I know it's a big story, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got to the release of the first batch of information when there was there were like various estimates that went up into the potentially into the thousands <laughs> yeah so what version do you want how many minutes do you want this answer to be uh we can uh, uh i mean it's a very interesting story and it get like i said it gets to one of the hearts of why statistics are so important so i mean if you can if you can do it in 10 minutes 10 minutes okay i'll give you the 10 minute version so the, the the report you were talking about was low death counts. The first one I was I saw was October third, and it was between the president of the United States and the governor of Puerto Rico. They they were they were claiming that sixteen that the death count was sixteen. This is a week and some after the hurricane, and I, I mean very few people with any kind of sense of what what was happening and how lack of power in a hospital, for example. The effects it could have weren't weren't really buying this number. Um, so immediately, there was an effort for many people to try to figure out what it was because if if the government thinks this, that means they're not. If there's something, there's a public health crisis occurring. You want to know about it so you can take action. So. This the fact that this is what they think is happening tells you that they're not aware of whatever it was that's happening. If in fact something was happening, so there's a, there's several efforts that start at this moment. We didn't know about them back then, but then we find out the New York Times uh, was was on it. They were trying to get the get to the information somehow. Other news outlets. There's a, there's a Puerto Rican group called the. Uh, CPI, Central Periodismo Investigativo, that was also on it. There was a, a group of, of researchers in Penn State who were trying to, to who, who had, I think, worked in a, or, or had knowledge of how the, the, the demographic registry worked in Puerto Rico, so they were able to, to get um, data and, and start to answer the question. Uh, and then there was a, a group at Harvard that, 
had heard from people on the ground, this wasn't me, this was Carolyn Bucky, it was the main person who had heard from a person she knew that worked in, in Puerto Rico in field studies that was telling her there's no way that's right. From what I've seen, I know it's not r true. And she got motivated to, to try to figure it out as well. So what she thought of doing was to do a, a survey, which is not what you do in a country like Puerto Rico that's part of the United States where you have a demographic registry. When you, when you know, when you keep track of everybody who's died, you can figure out how much, how many people have died above what you expect by looking at the observed minus expected uh, numbers. There's some statistics to be done there. It's not that complicated, you, you, but you need the data. So at that moment, um, what she thought and others thought was even if we can get that those numbers, we well, they, might not, they might not be right because uh, for whatever reasons, there's, there's people who go maybe on, unnoticed, uncounted. Uh, so they decided to do this survey. The idea is you send people to, to Puerto Rico. You design, I helped them design the study. Eventually, she came looking for me because she was looking for a statistician and somebody that she knew that knew me recommended she talk to me because we didn't know each other. We're both here, but we didn't know each other. Uh, so we started collaborating and, and, and working together on this. So I was providing advice on statistical design and analysis and, and things like that. And also, because I'm from Puerto Rico, I was also providing some intel about who, who you can go talk to in the island to do different things. Uh, for example, who do you contact to, to do the survey, which is not easy. So, so that starts around you November. Know, Around late October, October 23rd, I think, was the day that we started to talk about this. And we start planning it. At the same time, I start trying to get the, demo, the data from the government, the, the daily counts. And that turned out to be complicated. So I was, um, I was not getting the data that I needed to, to answer this. So I was getting uh, the, the, the current uh, counts for for September and October at that time, and then as well data from previous year, so we could compare and 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 also form the expected count. So there were these researchers at Penn State that obtained the the data from previous years and from a, a comment that the the Secretary of of um, what is it called the Secretary of Health of Public Safety. The, the, the Secretary of Public Healthy in Puerto Rico made a statement of how many people had died on September and October. It wasn't that they got it from a database. He actually said it in an interview. And then once you see the numbers that he said, uh, it was clear that there was, there was a, 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 an excess of about, and that, that, that time it was about 500. And he said something that was very worrisome at, at some point. There, by the way, I have a Simply Statistics blog post that, has this timeline written out for those that want to go see it because it's complicated. And I might, I might, I, and right now I might, I might be going back and forth in time. But he makes a statement that saying that the number of deaths in September isn't in excess because in December of the last year, about as many people died. But the problem with that, the big problem with that is that there's a seasonal effect to deaths it's not just in Puerto Rico, it's, it's in many other places because of viruses and flu that happens m most, it happens mostly in the winter time. So you, are, you expect higher numbers in the winter. If you compare the September number that he had to the previous September numbers, the, the excess was about 500. And it, I mean, if you make a plot, now that we have the data, we can make a plot and it's very, very striking, very easy to see. I mean, it's clear that there was something bad happening. Anyway, so so then the 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 New York Times actually gets their hands on on the on the data from the registry, and I remember I contacted them asking them how how did you get it and can you share it, and they told me that they had made a hundred phone calls slash emails to get this data, which you know explains why I wasn't able to get it because I didn't. They have the time to, to, to spend, you know, to, to doing that. And I didn't even think of trying to do that. But they, they showed 
um, that there was uh, about a thousand was their their count. So yeah, so we were going from sixteen that the government was claiming to to thousands. So at this at this point, we're starting we're starting to wonder if we we need to do continue the survey. Uh, and the the two things that happened that made us continue was that one. Um, yeah, so sorry. So there was one more group that also published a number around a thousand. So you know now you had three independent groups uh, stating this. So at this time you think, well, it's that's it. The government should see this and be convinced that that's that that there's something going on. But they don't. They insist on the lower counts, and they um, and then the, and then this the secretary of public safety makes this comment that shows that he he's comparing September's and December's. It means he, he doesn't have a very clear uh, understanding of, of how epidemiology, statistics, demography works. So, the, so we decided to continue the study, and it took it, it was done very quickly. The, the survey is an impressive group le, led by um, Domingo Marquez in Puerto Rico that, that was able to get, I think, all the data in about two or three weeks. And then we came up with a, with a very imprecise estimate because we only had about 10,000 people in the survey, 3,000 households. Uh, and we had, uh, so that, that leads to a, a, a confidence interval that's, that has like a, uh, almost 10,000 wide. It's not very precise. Uh, but the center of that, of that interval was around 4,000. So when we published our, our paper, I actually don't think it's going to get that much attention because there's already three, uh, including uh, three other groups that have published uh, something, and including the New York Times. But the, I think the combination of Harvard and the and the center of the interval being so high, it just caught it just caught the attention of the of the of the media and it and it went viral. So at that time, the, one of the I mean, the, the fact that it goes viral and it gets reported in a, in a way that's, that was a bit sensationalist wasn't good. But one good consequence was that it, it put pressure on the government, which at, to that day, this is in May, uh, around May 29th, I think the article comes out, 2018. We're still trying to get the data, the, demogra the, the registry data, and they still haven't made it public. And there's other groups trying to get it. Uh, and... Three days after our study comes out, there's there's an interview with uh, Anderson Cooper on CNN where the main question Anderson Cooper was asking was, why didn't you share the data with 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 the Harvard investigators? Because we said when they asked us, why did you do a survey when you you could you could have just looked at the demographic data? We we said because we we couldn't get it, couldn't the government wouldn't share it with us, and that that. The governor then says that that's not true. That they they the, the data is available, and he said that if that he has some statement like heads are going to roll if the data isn't made public, and then yeah, that um, it wasn't exactly that. Don't quote me on that, but he said something like very strong like that, like the the data is, needs to be public. And that afternoon, they they agreed to give it to us, and that once we have that data, then we. We start analyzing the demographic registry, data and we get an estimate that's around three thousand. Uh, th and by the way, these all have uncertainty attached to them. Quite a bit of uncertainty. You know, it could be. This gets a little technical, but uh, it, so when I say three thousand, I mean that's the estimate of the observed minus the expected. But that doesn't take into account the fact that you have a lot of variability from from year to year and how many people die for many reasons, for example, viruses. So it's hard to, it's, it's, it, it, that number needs to be understood as what it is. It's the observed minus the expected, but it could be that another year with a vi bad virus, you get a thousand people dying on the excess. You see what I'm saying? It's not, it's not that there could have been a virus going around Puerto Rico that was really bad that accounts for some of those deaths. We, we don't, we can't know that. So, um, that the, the the first when I my first analysis for that is in, in simply statistics and the code is included so you can you you know you can see what I did uh, the data was shared as a PDF so there was a lot of data wrangling I mean it's like eighty percent of the code is data wrangling 
just extracting all those numbers from the PDF. Uh, and, and yeah, and that was now, now we have, we're working on a paper on, on that data set, sort of describing statistical approaches that one can use once you have demographic data. And, and we're also comparing it to other hurricanes like Katrina and Sandy, all, all these big hurricanes in the U.S. So we're applying the same ideas to those, to those, um, those, those hurricanes. And, and the other thing I should mention is that there was a, a study commission. I think I'm past my 10 minutes now. <laughs> there was another study commissioned by the government for, by George Washington University. That was commissioned in February. By that time, we already had our data. And they came out with, it, with their report in, I think, late July or August of 2018. And they also come to the conclusion that this is about 3,000 is the, yes, this is the point estimate of the excess deaths. Uh, so, you know, that's good that, that, that there's agreement there. Once you have the demographic data, that's, that's what comes out. But, yeah, you, you should – if you're interested in more, I have these a couple of Simply Statistics blog posts on this topic, which you, I can send you the links if you want to uh, add them somewhere. Yeah, I know that. And then, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and then there's also a bioarchive paper with some preliminary results from our current research in that in that in in how to analyze that data. Yeah, thanks for thanks very much for for sharing all of that, and um, it, it's just such a fascinating story uh, given the sort of interconnection of of actual you know tragedy uh, and politics and money and the media. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, it is. And, huh? You know, bureaucracy uh, and things like that, and and, and with the media. It's it, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about since this happened. Is that the it's, it's a communic it's a communication? Like I I think I I had I learned about that about that about how to better best communicate results, knowing that things can get can get sensationalized or or can go viral. So it's it's a little bit harder than just than just sort of explaining it so that anybody can understand. It really goes beyond that. You have to. You have to take into account. If I explain it this way, is it gonna? Is it? Is there a room for someone to grab a, a part of what I just said and and make it sound more more uh, worse than it is, or, or or more interesting than it is? So that is something that has has gotten me that this this experience has has gotten me thinking about that. Like how should statisticians communicate results, not just so that people understand them, but so that it's it's hard for someone to misconstrue what you're saying. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for for bringing that up. That's actually what I wanted to talk about with you next. Um, and and by the way, I'll make sure to include links to to um, uh, all the articles and the blog posts and stuff like that, which I think I've I think I've got a handle on on most of them. And if I miss anything, you can you can let me know. Uh, but one of the things that happened so is that, and I'm just going to read I'm just going to read a line from a Washington Post article that came out on May May 29th, 2018, just to just give people an impression of how. All this work that you did was conveyed to people. And so the, the line goes, the Harvard study's statistical analysis found that deaths related to the hurricane fell within a range of about 800 to more than 8,000, settling on a midpoint overall estimate of 4,645, end quote. And you, you talked about the confidence interval, which is a term of art uh, in statistics. And you, you in, in the Harvard study, you and your colleagues tried to convey, as you were just saying, Ask the technical aspects of how what these numbers really mean, but that information was not even attempted in many cases to be passed on to people, and people were just presented with numbers. And when I was reading about this, it reminded me the particular challenge of communicating these things. These some of these concepts are actually just complicated, uh, but but yeah. But one of the problems is that, and I, this might sound like a very specific thing, but I used to I used to be an investment banker, and one of the things that I did was show people numbers and charts and things like that. And one thing I've discovered, and I also discovered this, like, you know, pitch, when I, I eventually ended up in the sort of tech startup world and I would pitch products and things like that, startup ideas. And one thing I discovered is that if you show people numbers, they see reality. They don't see, like, they, if you, I think if a lot of people, if they haven't had the experience of being like the person who typed those numbers into the spreadsheet and then, you know, hit the button to do the calculation, they don't understand that there are the concepts that there are ranges and estimates and confidence intervals and, and things like that. And I, I found like even in person, one-on-one, -on -one, 
trying to explain to people, no, no, what you're seeing are projections based on assumptions, based on factors like, you know, what's the interest rate going to be? What's inflation going to be like? Blah, 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 blah. People just be just believe what they see, what you show them at first. Yeah. And trying to trying to get beyond that is actually extremely difficult because and I don't I, again, I, I, I'm. I haven't had the, the, the sort of like experience with, you know, things as serious as, as you have, but it is just the case that people believe what you show them. Yeah. Yeah, no. And let, let me say that quote you just read was it was not bad compared to others. Oh, I mean, that was that's that's, you know, they actually gave you the interval. Mm. So. So. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, and I think that what we have to we have to take that into account when we when we communicate. We have to take into account that we, that it's what we're we're communicating is complicated. That this this idea of there being assumptions and that you can change them and get something different that's not even uncertainty, right? That's that's us. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, I mean, that's also called a, like the research degrees of freedom. So, like for example, in our in our recent study on our recent manuscript, we have a page at the end where we change assumptions about the the population that's left in Puerto Rico after the hurricane, because that, that we don't really know how many people are left. So we had, we, we had a guess and we, we, we tried different approaches to, to trying to estimate that. But then you can see how much the estimate changes, not because of uncertainty, but because of, of, of the choice that we made on how to estimate the population. Those are hard things to describe. Yes. And, and one thing that I learned is that, you know, how we, 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 I teach people to to not put significant digits that are unnecessary, right? When you, and especially you're using R or, or Python and it spits out a number and it has eight significant digits after the period, you know, and the standard error is 0.1, you don't need all those other, all those other numbers, right? You don't have to say 8.12399, you just cut it at, one, at the first one or whatever your uncertainty tells you you should cut it at. So in, in our case, we should, the, the 4,645, we should have really surrounded it to, to some, 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 some rounder number, right? Because it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it should have been 4,000 4, well, or, or, or more than 800. Well, exactly. Right? And the, the, the precision, <laughs> I mean, I've had this experience in different areas, but like the precision actually conveys to people a sense of confidence. Yeah. Like, and, so, that, yeah. And, they, they, and so if, you, if, you, if you've been behind behind it, you understand that, like, let's say to take an example from like industry, you know, the publishing industry is going to grow by 3.25% in the next five years. You know, that's complete horseshit. Yeah. Uh, and this is just some analyst was given a task of coming up with a number and they came up with something. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then, but if you do go like 4,625, yeah, that's right. Down to like the single decimal, you know, people people think, or you know, the, the final number. People actually take that as a sign that you're very confident in what you're doing, yeah. even if it's in the same sentence as it's presented as a range from eight to eight thousand. Yeah, right, right. It's I mean, that's right. That, that's a, that's something I would do different in, in the next the next time, definitely. And 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 yeah, and it, it makes it seem like we we counted. That was a big one of the mm -hmm. biggest misconceptions is that we actually were counting people that died. And, and I mean, it's, it's, again, it's a hard thing to understand this concept of a, of a, of a survey. And, and that's not, you know, that's not something everybody learns. It's not, it's not part of the high school curriculum, I don't think. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting. So that leads me to my next, the next topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is, so, you know, like I said, when you've been the person behind the, behind the spreadsheet with the assumptions in it, doing the analysis, you have a sort of hands-on awareness of, of what sort of output numbers and charts and stuff like that really mean. But at the same time, these ideas aren't just hard for sort of people who are not experts to understand. They're actually hard problems internally. And I don't know if you saw this, but just by coincidence, recently there was a comment published in Nature online with over 800 signatories from the scientific community called Scientists Rise Up Against Statistical Significance. Yes. Did you see you saw that? So Yeah, it's all over the it's like all over the internet. I I imagine. So I wanted to talk to you about that because so so you know, if even the experts are getting are are making sort of what I'm like so I'm not in this area, but like, you know, it, it didn't strike me as surprising that people were just, you know, 
using something called the p-value in a sort of really sort of roughshod way. You know, if if the number comes above this number, then it's not statistically significant. If the number comes out underneath, then it is. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this this issue of statistical significance and why it's why it's a matter of debate right now within the scientific community? Oh man, that's another poll podcast, and you can get real experts talking. There's people who like really uh, discuss this at at at, uh, at length uh, that in a way have made part of their careers to think about this. It's a little philosophical too. It's not just mathematical, but I'll tell you what I think. So, and I'll also explain what, 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 where this comes from. So, um, I, I think it was Fisher who came up with that cutoff back in, I don't know, 100 years ago. 0. Uh, 0. 0.05. 0.05. I don't know what, I can't remember what it was he was doing, and statisticians might get angry at me for not knowing my history, but yeah, he came up, he comes up with that number, and, and, and it's still, it's, it's, it's stayed. Still, we still use it. It's completely arbitrary. Uh, so, and, and then this this idea of of dividing things into st- significant or not, which I think has its place in some parts of science. For example, if you're going to uh, approve a drug, it might make sense to have a hard cutoff of so- of something like a p value or or something else, but some kind of hard cutoff so that we don't so we take we take subjectivity out of the equation. With something like a drug, you really don't want, I don't think. Uh, too much human intervention in, in how we decide if, if, if we should approve it or not, right? There should be a, a set uh, algorithm that protects us from from false positives and also doesn't keep too many true positives from 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 from, from going to the market or whatever. Or drug drugs may be made available that are actually helpful. But um, what should that number be? Well, we, we can have a discussion about it, but it should be something. Now, in other aspects of science, it, it makes absolutely no sense to, the, to, to talk about statistical significance. You, you, what what uh, we, we have taught in statistics classes for, at least I have and most of my colleagues have for, for decades, is that if you do an, ex- you do an experiment, there's, some, there's randomness in your estimate, uh, and... Sometimes there's a hypothesis that you want to reject or not, uh, but let's 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 forget about that for a second. You're estimating something. You should simply give your estimate and give a a, a confidence interval. That's one improvement over what is done today, which is just say significant or not. Right, so because because then you're saying I think the effect is this much, and 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 the data is noisy, so the, the range is. There's this natural variability, all these other things. So the rain, there, it could have been some other number. That's kind of what you're trying to say. I'm being like very va- uh, vague here. I'm not using technical terms, but when what, but what has become the standard in many journals is that you have to that 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 finding uh, in many cases, if it's for example, is there an effect or not? Is is does coffee cause uh, this disease? The smoking caused lung cancer, right? If it's a question like that, rather than stating the effect that you think it has, like the risk, how much more risk does a does a smoker have over a non-smoker? That we instead, the rule that's used in on many publications is is p is the p value bigger or smaller than 0.05. Now, what's an, an alternative to that? One simple alternative to that is just say what it is. It's 0.043. Or it's 0.069, or it's 0.15. You just say what it is. You don't make this distinction, and that's one of the things I think this opinion piece is saying that it's an it's a it's it's very arbitrary to jump from yes to no when you go from 0.04999 to 0.5001. That's I think what the argument is, and I agree with it. So that's that's just one easy improvement is to actually report. Uh, the actual p-value. Now, the other one of the bad consequences of having this this threshold is that the, that you you only get to see the papers that achieve it in 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 in, in many circumstances. So, uh, if twenty people did the experiment and it's it's and one of them had a p-value less than 0.05, the others didn't. It's probably the case that it, there is no effect. Uh, 
but you get to you you see the paper where you only see the paper that found that there was an effect. You don't you don't see the nineteen that had smaller estimates. You see the one that that had the higher estimate, and that that introduces a, a, a bias. It's, they call it publication bias. So there there's many problems with this idea of just dichotomizing results in this way. There's there's many other arguments people make about about this, and and you know I, we 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 could have a whole podcast about it. If you want to have it, I can give you some names of people who think about this more than me. Uh, well, if they publish books on LeanPub, then I'd be happy to <laughs> interview them about it. But uh, uh, yeah, no, thanks for explaining that. I mean, we do, like, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it because there are so many when we we get these precise numbers or we see these precise charts, but there are all these dimensions behind it, like politics, like reality on the ground, like bureaucracy, uh, like how it's communicated through the media, and even you know, which isn't the same as how it's communicated to the media in the first place. And then now you've brought up, there's these issues of theory and um, basically philosophy of science, but also institutional practice and motivations and things like that. So behind these numbers that we get, you know, studies show that 45% of people who do this get that. There's just so much complexity behind it and messiness. And I wanted to oh, yeah, yeah. use that as a chance to, to go into the next uh, part of the interview, which is, um, you've mentioned things about the data being noisy and, and cleaning up the data, and that hooks into, I think, something I brought up earlier, which is something that you and Roger and Jeff write about on the Simply Statistics blog, which is, and in your books, which is how important it is to have hands-on experience doing data science. And I wanted to ask you, why is that so important? For Because I think in a lot of people's minds, it's like, well, you've got you've got data, that sounds precise. You've got computers, that sounds precise. You've got million-dollar experimental machines using microwaves that sounds precise why why would you've got all the scientific theory behind you why would you need hands-on experience why do you need to clean up data why do you need to get rid of noise oh well that has a lot of that's a long that has a complicated long answer i'll try my best to, to shorten it up so before i i continue i want to clarify that the, i use the word noisy it, it's coming from my roots as from signal processing and where they use the, the term noise, but a, a more precise term would be variability. Uh, there's 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 unwanted variability. There's there's variability that's interesting, and, and statistics is all about parsing those two out, to, to parsing those two out, right? So, so when I say noisy, I sometimes include variability that is that is, for example, in the in the in the, in the cases of of deaths, it's nature. The noise, the quote unquote, no, what I was calling noisy, meant that you had, um, you know, one year there's there's more deaths because of a virus, another year it's there's less deaths because it was it was we got lucky and there was no bad influence or anything. See what I'm saying? Like so, when I as I was using the term noisy before, I was I was using it very very generally to to signify sort of stochastic variability in general. All right, so now let's get to your question about the importance of of looking at data. So. So first, I want to I want to second what you said earlier about how important theory is, and how important what we call statistical methodology is. So we uh, the, the reason it's important is because it keep one of the reasons it's important is that it keeps us from reinventing the wheel. So there's many problems in, when I that I face as a data analyst where I don't invent anything new. I can use something off the shelf that someone invented 100 years ago, and it's just proven to work over and over again in situations like this. So that's, that's why theorem, theory and methodology are interested in, in, in telling us about that. Right? So there's a book of stuff that has worked in the past, and that's, there's a ton of stuff. You, you have it, you read it, you, you have a toolbox. You don't want to reinvent that toolbox. So if you're going to be doing data analysis, you really do want to learn about all the statistical methods that have been that have been. Um, published that have been used in the past. Now, with that said, what you don't want to use, what you don't want to do, is use that as a recipe book that you follow as you are baking a cake, because that also doesn't work. And and the reason it doesn't work is because every problem, at least in my experience, almost every problem ha has some nuances that make it so that a recipe won't won't um, won't work. And you have to tweak this or, or maybe use another method that you thought was not um, the right one at first, but then you realize it was. 
or you realize that you have to transform the data before you do that, or you realize that whoever was, now there's all kinds of things that can happen. Whoever was, 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 uh, was, uh, was uh, taking the data, was, was making mistakes, had a mistake, or one day there was mistakes. You know, you, these are things that the, the books don't tell you about. This is why it's important to ha get a, gain experience. You, you, you gain experience by doing, you start seeing problems that are uh, co somewhat common, you see them, and then when you see them again, you know what to do. And you also gain, you gain a, a, an experience or a sense of how to, how to search for problems, how to find problems, and in particular, data visualization is, is very important, perhaps the most important part of, of analyzing data. You, you, before following a recipe, there, you want to look at the data to make sure that it's appropriate to follow that recipe, and very often it's not. So that's, um, that's why it's so important to, to, look at, to, to, to work with data because there's, there, the re, there's no such thing as a recipe book for doing data analysis. You, you have to learn by experience. You have to, there's other things you learn by experience too, like how to, how to be efficient when you code and you analyze data, how to, how to, how to make your data reproducible, coding techniques that make make it make you more efficient there's all these other things you learn as well so that's that's what i would say and there's another thing that that um that uh, i would say about statistics that is it relates to this to the state analysis a question you asked me is that there's there's certain ways that we get confused with data that arise uh if more often than not, Simpson's paradox is a, is a is an example of, well, not, maybe not Simpson's paradox. I should say confounding is an example of this, where where you think x causes y, but it turns out that there's another variable z that causes both x and y to to change, and and that's something that we with experience and and analyzing data, you 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 see that happening often and now know to look for it so those, that's another thing that you learn by by learning statistics and epidemiology in, in the case of confounding yeah it sounds like one of the really important things to learn is to uh not necessarily believe your in, your first intuition when you when you see something yeah yeah and you also you learn to test things out to to, to to test for how rigorous what you did is you there's there's a lot of things you learn with by, by actually analyzing data as opposed to learning just learning the methods and the theory. So that's what Roger, Jeff, and I are, are I think you, you're hearing us talk about often. Yeah, it's interesting. Just yesterday uh, when I was preparing for the interview, I read an, uh, a piece by uh, Roger, which is very interesting. He brought up von Clausewitz uh, when he's talking about uh, what the distinction, distinction between sort of theory and practice. And he, he sort of articulated things in terms similar to the ones you just used where, you know, you should learn everything that worked in the past, but essentially when you go to war <laughs> in this metaphor, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to pay attention to what's happening in moment in real time on the ground uh, mm -hmm. and, and use the, you be aware of what's worked in the past, but be, be willing to innovate in the moment. Um, you mentioned visualization being very important and that reminded me of a post you published recently, which, which had me laughing, uh, although it is serious. And you said, um, well, basically you're not a fan of bar charts. Oh. And I was wondering, this, plus, this is yeah. something that uh, Dynamite. Yeah, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that because this is something that we all see and use all the time. But and and anyway, it, it, I, I found it very very interesting that something so so familiar is actually something that okay. you, you think so, you shouldn't be using. So first of all, let me clarify: bar bar plots are are fine if you're if you're showing if you want to show ten numbers and, and you want you want the 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 to do it through a graph, use visual cues. The bar plot is a, is a tool to use. Right? So each number gets one bar, and uh, and length is a is the best visual cue for 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 eyes to connect some shape to a to a number. So it's 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 what you do. Now the the my critique was of were really they're called dynamite plots or they have another name bar and something else, and this is widely used in science to summarize multiple data points. And that's where I have a problem, not just me. There's a whole article written, there's articles written about it. Um, so, and in my blog post, I, 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 I link to those, to those articles so people can, can go see that. This is like something that has been actually published before. So, so the problem is that you have, if you're, if you're, if you, 
you have a, you're making a comparison between two groups, say a, a, a control and a, and a treatment group, and you have 20 data points for each one. You wanna, if you want to compare those two, you want to sh- it's, it's, I, as a reader, want to see those 40 points. It's not hard to do. You, know, you just plot them. You plot the 40 points, and I can see them. You, you know, put them next to each other. Or if that's too much to ask, you make a little box plot so I can know the range of the data uh, or, or two histograms. But that's not what's done. That's not that's not uh, always done in science. In science, sometimes they make a bar plot. So they they make a bar plot that shows you the mean of each group, and then they add a little antenna uh, that tells you the standard error of each group. So you're you're now showing me four numbers, and there are many many ways in which two groups of twenty points can have the same mean and the same standard deviation. So you're you're really over summarizing the data and actually not showing me much. You're showing me four numbers, and if you want to think about it in terms of of ecological uh, impact, if you're printing a journal, you're you're wasting a lot of ink, a lot of toner and paper on this graph that's just showing you four numbers. Thanks, thanks for explaining that. I think I understand. I think I understand your point a little bit better now. Um, uh, so before we move on to talk about your your uh, latest book and how it came about. I wanted to ask you a selfish question. So I, I ran a hockey stats website for a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed doing it. Um, and I know you, you wrote a post a while ago about LeBron James and you talk about in some of your talks, you talk about Moneyball and stuff like that. And I was wondering just as a, as someone who, who, who knows all about these things, um, how do you see sports statistics evolving in the sort of near term? Oh man, they, they just keep getting more and more uh, uh, sophisticated. It's impressive. So I I'm a huge uh, baseball and basketball fan. Uh, so since I was a kid, and I've always looked at the stats and thought about the stats. So it's it's something that I've always liked. So that's why you see me posting a, a, a about it every once in a while. I like uh, how statistics is used in sports. It's also one of the first very clear examples of someone doing better using stats like this Moneyball movie is, is a, a, a summary of, of what happened of how someone used statistics to improve, to, to find inefficiencies in this, in the system. But now you're seeing, I mean, in, in, in I've seen things in NBA where they're keeping the data is actually where every player was at every, I don't know, second or some, some time frame and where the ball was. And so, so that's a, pretty complex data set and from there they're trying to figure out what plays are more efficient you know which, which groups of, of players work play better together it's super complicated it's and very sophisticated uh, i think it's i think it's very interesting and and i um i see it continuing to to thrive and and to be a, a big part of sports yeah maybe uh maybe one day some ai will be uh calling the plays yeah well I mean, sure, yeah, yeah. And in baseball, you could have a. I mean, I, I think there are teams that almost, almost do that. Not quite, but that you have basically a computer set calling what to do next. Not a lot. No, there's not like a, there's a robot in the in the dugout, but that there's like an algorithm already written out for the manager. Mm-hmm. If you know if this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do that. Is if if this pitcher comes in, this batter is going to hit against him. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be really interesting to watch what happens. I, I I've read a little bit about you know they're gathering this sort of I guess essentially sort of three dimensional data from the entire court, uh, oh, and it oh. just gives people so much to think about. So there's there's two things with sports. One is the the how to build a team, how how to pick plays. Uh, that's one aspect of it. But then the other aspect, which is 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 now part of a lot of organizations, they hire people to do this, and they appear to do it quite well. The other part of it is that I get more involved in, not too much, but every once in a while, is using statistics data to, to prove that one player is better than the other. Like, that's what my post about LeBron is. I'm a, a huge fan of LeBron mainly because I've seen, I see his stats and I just can't believe it that there's someone this good. And that so anybody could, could, could question his greatness. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, moving on to the, the last part of the interview, I wanted to talk just a little bit about your book, um, uh, Introduction to Data Science, Data Analysis and Prediction Algorithms with R. Um, I believe it, it, it sort of springs from, like your previous book, it springs from your 
your on your MOOCs, um, your edX courses. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the book and uh, you know how you used GitHub uh, to to produce it. Yeah. So let's see. So where do I start? So we we the first the first book was a was for the first MOOC. Uh, we were we were creating our markdowns for the lectures. I said when we prepared lectures, we would start, we would have like, we had our markdown that created the plots that we were going to show in some cases. And that, uh, at that, what were we doing now? You got, I have to think back because this is now I'm using something called book down, but that wasn't a rounder. I didn't know how to use it back then. So Mike wrote this script that would turn the R markdowns into automatically all at the same time into into a web page. And there was there was these tools to do this, and GitHub was was part of it because they they facilitated this. And then they would automatically turn into a web page with which rent which with rendered R markdowns, right? R, the, the so that people can read it and see the graphs, not just the code. And that was that. I really liked that. Like everybody could just go and the students could go in and actually see the code and and copy and paste it if they wanted to download the original R Markdown. They could do that too. So that was that was. Uh, I I really liked that approach. It it helped me organize and be efficient. It was much more work because you had to prepare uh, these these R Markdowns in advance. But at the end, it was I was very satisfied with that and. We at that point when we had all these R markdowns, either either Jeff or or Roger told me that I should just turn it into a LeanPub book because I already I've already did all the work. It's already all in Markdown. Uh, so we did that. It wasn't as easy as they said it was going to be, uh, but it was it was relatively easy. The difference is that my book had much more code than theirs, so it, it had more places to break, uh, and much more LaTeX than theirs. So again, there was more places to break, but yeah, I mean, the LaTeX was was challenging, uh, but it, I mean, it worked out. You know, and we put it up there, and it got a lot of people downloading it. I, I love the fact that you can you can make it free and and give a suggestion because it people do pay. It's like ten percent, I think, pay uh, at least for my for that book. There might be other 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 you know stats for different other books, but yeah, it was it was great because I was. It was free, and, and we were still making a little bit of money on it. Uh, and at the same time, it was a great resource for students. So it was like it was good all over. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that 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 explanation. Um, just for anyone listening who's who's not aware, um, one of the features of uh, selling a book on LeanPub is that you can have we have a, a variable pricing model. So the author can set a suggested price and a minimum price, and that minimum price can be free. And what we found, uh, as, as Raphael's found, is that a lot of people, even when a minimum price is pre, will pay for it, which is a nice bonus for, for the authors. Um, one of the reasons people do that is that we show, we pay an 80% royalty rate, which is high for the industry, and we actually show how much the author earns when you choose what to pay. So it establishes this nice connection uh, between your, yourself as a, as a customer or a reader and the author. Uh, but also, uh, having that free minimum price is really important for certain types of projects, particularly those aimed at a very wide audience for educating them. And because uh, not everybody can afford to pay, and yeah. you don't, you don't like if you want to, if your goal is to train the next generation, well, the first generation of of you know data scientists around the world, that free minimum price actually plays a really practical role in achieving your goal. Yeah, I mean, it's like it, uh, in our classes, and it's particular art, and because we're teaching this was for a MOOC, we had a substantial number of people for where people have much less purchasing power. You know, whatever. That's just the reality, and and it was it would seem unfair to to have them not be able to have the book that all the other students have. So it was it was just that you know it was my one of my favorite parts of of the lean pub model was yeah. that you could do that. Yeah, that's very so, much. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. So, so the other the other, uh, the other thing I was going to say, just to, because for others thinking about doing this, that for my second experience, I used something called Bookdown for the book. So my second MOOCs, I, I decided this is the way to do it. Every single, before every lecture, I'm going to do an R markdown. So it was a lot of work at first, 
but at the end, I basically have a book done. So, and I use something called R, uh, book, book Down. It's a package in R that makes it quite easy to turn R markdowns into an, an, an online book. Uh, it's, not, it's not like LeanPub where you actually have a PDF with pages. It's, it's more like a web page. Uh, and then the book down also lets you turn it into a PDF. So uh, LeanPub lets you submit a PDF. So all I had to do was just submit this PDF, and there it is. And it's now published in LeanPub. It was so easy, so easy compared to the, to the previous time. Because I didn't have to LaTeX anything. You know, this book down took care of all that. Yeah, well, thanks thanks very much for that very clear explanation. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll really um, help anyone listening if they're thinking about um, uh, publishing something to a company, a MOOC on LeanPub, or, or just publishing on LeanPub generally. Um, so uh, the last question I always like to ask people here, it's, it's a bit of a springing on you kind of question, but is if there were one thing we could build for you or one <laughs> thing we could fix for you on LeanPub, is there anything you can you can think of? Um, yeah, well, last time it would have been LaTeX because there was some weird LaTeX you guys use. So some, I can't remember what it was, but I didn't have to do that this time. I, cause I let, I did it on, I, I created the PDF myself, but that, that last time we had, we had to write a script to change the actual LaTeX to the LaTeX that LeanPub took. That was really the, the source of the pain point for me, but it wasn't really that bad. I don't really have much to say. It's I like the system. Um, the other things out there should say, I guess you guys tell them all the time, but you get like 80% of the proceeds, which is unheard of. Yeah, well, thank you. Right, am I right about that? Yes, is it 80? Yeah, yeah, it's 80%. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks thanks very much for, for, for that, for that feedback. I'll make sure to communicate that to Scott, uh, my colleague. Um, and uh, thanks very much for taking the time to do this interview. I, I had a lot of fun. It was You were very game to cover cover so much ground. Um, and, uh, and thanks, uh, also for, uh, using LeanPub to publish your book. Yeah. Thank you guys for, for providing the service. And thanks as always to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in iTunes or wherever you found our podcast. And if you're interested in becoming a LeanPub author yourself, please visit our website at leanpub.com.